So the question is, what happens when you have one of these pieces of space junk crash into something else? And that's really, you know, they're traveling pretty fast. That may not be as big of a deal. It's when that crashes into something else and you get this cascading effect of, uh, of things crashing into other things. And now you've got a ring of junk around uh, the Earth that we can't fire a satellite up in anymore, a rocket up into orbit. And that will... Uh, in a in a good case, you know, a year or two. In a bad case, decades. We'd have to wait before being able to launch another rocket. We are back with another episode of the Cold Star Project, the podcast about the unexpected challenges of scaling, including with space startups. And I have here the founder of a space startup, Charles Bradley. Charles, you are the founder of Pixie, which is about uh, predicting collisions of space objects. And Fraser Kane and I got into this a little bit in uh, in previous episode. There's a thing called the Kessler syndrome, which is named after the scientist who proposed it in 1978. And this thing has been near and dear to my heart after I found out about it because it's freaking terrifying. Uh, it's the idea of as we put up more and more stuff into orbit, satellites and that, and they stop working, and they're just going to go around as uh, space junk and, and eventually lose orbit. And, and I understand there has been a collision already, right, Charles? Well, there's been, um, there have been many collisions, but uh, most of them we don't hear about. Hmm. One of them, uh, there, there was a very highly publicized collision involving the Iridium-33 satellite in um, February 2009, which um, was a major loss it was like a 50 million dollar loss and it was the first publicly announced loss of a operational commercial satellite as a result of a collision um, there have been collisions that have not caused a total loss of a spacecraft and um, there have been multiple collisions of the international space station and the space shuttle for example there there uh, um, you know, chips of paint have uh, hit the windows um, but Fortunately, there was no real damage as a result. Um, you know, so there's a, but there are there are other spacecraft of other countries that may have been destroyed that we would never hear about. There are some countries that <clears throat> would not necessarily publicly admit that they lost a spacecraft, for example, for various security reasons. So we don't have the whole picture. So it's possible that what we're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg. Hmm. And, and that is, yeah, a part of the problem that you want to help solve is that we don't have all the information. So what's wrong with today's detection of collision technology? Okay. Well, there's a couple of issues. Um, one of the lessons that was learned from the Iridium-33 collision was that um, I think the community had a bit of a false sense of security. Um, and, it, and we learned that um, we don't actually know where objects are with, as, with a, as, as much of a degree of precision as we would like or as, a, as we thought they had. Um, most people have been relying um, in large part or sometimes entirely on data released by the U United States Department of Defense, the uh, STRATCOM NORAD two-line elements. And um, those are nominal values. Okay. And um, as a scientist and engineer, um, I have always been taught that, uh, you know, quoting a number is really means nothing unless you give it a, 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 an error dispersion or confidence level. Uh, and NORAD never did that. They were just producing, uh, they were just publishing um, nominal values. And everybody assumed that those numbers were 
accurate. Hmm. NORAD never made any, and to this day, STRATCOM has never made any claim as to the accuracy of the numbers which they're releasing. And it turns out those numbers are not particularly accurate. And that is a piece of information that STRATCOM doesn't really want the public to know. Uh, it turns out that the accuracy of their orbital element predictions is classified. Mm -hmm. It's secret. It is intentionally not published. Uh, and that, that would be for military security reasons. Those uh, elements um, are, are, are produced by um, sensors, detector arrays, a space fence, tracking assets like that, um, wh whose primary purpose is to detect, um, you know, incoming missile, ballistic missiles and incoming hostiles. And they don't want the bad guys to know how accurate or inaccurate uh, those systems are. Mm -hmm. So they will never, they will, it is extremely unlikely that they will ever publish the accuracy. Now, how accurate, however, um, if you're going to be in the business of collecting positions, it is absolutely imperative that you have a very good handle on your accuracy. Mm -hmm. And we just, we just don't have that. Um, so. The best week and, and um, the there is now anecdotal data. Uh, people have now tried to use, you know, alternate data sources uh, and we tried to reverse engineer how accurate the Stratcom data is. And it looks like it's at least a kilometer off possibly a couple of kilometers off. Um, and uh, one, I mean, one data point we have, for example, was the Iridium 33 satellite. Um, uh, the, the prediction for the, uh, what they call conjunctions or close approaches of spacecraft are called conjunctions. And um, the prediction in the case of uh, Iridium 33 in February, 2009, with the Cosmos satellite would miss by a distance of 584 meters. Okay, so that collision was predicted and it was predicted mm -hmm. to have a missed distance of 584 meters. So we know that the error is at least 584 meters, <laughs> right. Pro probably a lot more. Um, and um, uh, it turns out that there were other conjunctions of Iridium 33 that were predicted that month, many conjunctions actually. And the conjunction with the cosmos did not make the top ten list for that month, hmm. so it was so it was ignored. Okay. And so when some, it happened, it was a complete surprise. Yeah, some serious problems there with uh, a bad margin of error, unknown how big it is, and uh, and that desire to keep that classified. Um, yeah, it's not not very helpful. So how can we get the precision and accuracy of collision detection improved? Sure. Well, there's a couple of ways of doing it. Um, I mean, one way is to build sort of bigger and better radar systems um, and optical tracking systems. Uh, that's a pretty expensive undertaking. Hmm. And believe it or not, there is at least one company I know that's doing that, Leo Labs, and I wish them the very best of luck, uh, and they're doing a good job. But it's, it's pretty expensive, uh, many tens of millions of dollars. Um, and uh, even then, if you're doing it based with ground stations or ground radar stations, you're still quite limited in your, in your coverage. I mean, right now, Leo Labs has two stations and they're building a third mm -hmm. one. And in low Earth orbit, any satellite, that, that means any satellite will be out of, out of view for at least 90% of the time. Okay. 
And while the satellite is out of view, the errors will tend to increase. So um, it's a good start, but it's, it's not going to solve the problem. Um, we at Space, uh, now to be more accurate, uh, it's, uh, I'm co-founder of a company called Space Initiatives. Mm -hmm. And uh, the product we're um, planning is called Pixie. So I'm, um, um, and I have my partner currently is Marshall Eubanks. We co-founded the company. And we have two other shareholders now as well. Um, but the the idea of the Pixie is to put um, these little tiny transponder black boxes onto spacecraft. Uh, we would like to see but from now on, or from as soon as we can get funding, every spacecraft that is ever launched should carry uh, these little Pixie transponders. And the way they work, they each carry a GPS receiver. So with the GPS receiver, your position accuracy goes to 10 meters already. So you're getting from, you know, maybe two or three kilometers down to 10 meters. So that's two orders of magnitude right there. Okay. And then um, to uh, improve matters more, uh, we can download, downlink the data 24 seven. We will, we are not limited to ground stations. We are going to use commercial satellite networks. And there are at least three available, and I'll name names of three in low Earth orbit that we're looking at. There's Iridium, Global Star, and Orbcom. And then there's also up in geosynchronous orbit and in Marsat. Um, there are pros and cons to using these different systems, but probably more likely to use a LEO system than a than the geo system because uh, that way we have smaller antennas is the primary reason. Um, but uh, we we can downlink the data continuously, um, and the 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 subscription rates on these commercial communication satellite systems are remarkably inexpensive, and we you know we're talking like ten to twenty dollars a month. All right, I mean compare that with I mean I don't know how much it costs to subscribe to the Leo Lab system, but I, I I seriously doubt they can get down to a price point that's anywhere 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 close to that. Hmm. And um, and in fact, that's well, that's a little misleading because the pricing is not is not driven by that. Okay, there are other factors that cause us to charge more than that. Um, but the but the basic cost of uh, the satellite system to get the data down twenty four four by seven is 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 trivial. Um, and uh, this, by the way, are very low data rate, low bandwidth downlinks. This it's not voice quality, certainly not video quality. We just download something like 500 bytes every few minutes, okay? Mm. And for that kind of, it's called a machine-to-machine, -machine, it's Internet of Things type service. That's where you have rates of, you know, 20, 10 to $20 a month. And that is perfectly adequate for downloading GPS data, okay? And that's basically all we can do. We, we figure we, uh, these, these little devices will be solar-powered. They'll have a little solar panel on it. A little battery, so we'll operate on the in the dark part of the orbit, and um, so we figure these things will be you know about the size of a cell phone, and uh, um, and we will not really be selling these devices. We will be selling the tracking service. We'll be selling subscriptions to a tracking service. So what happens? The the um, positional data that comes down downlink down from the picture will go to a uh, an analysis center mm. on Earth, right? And in this analysis center, there will be computational engines and uh, software 
which will be used for making orbital predictions. And these predictions will be better than what anybody else has right now. Well, I, I, there's one caveat on that. There is one group of people that already has exceptionally good accuracy of their tracking on spacecraft, and that is the remote sensing community. And also, I am sure the, the uh, intelligence reconnaissance community also has very accurate knowledge, uh, but that comes at a high price. Uh, they, they have very specially equipped ground stations with atomic clocks hmm. and uh, very accurate GPS receivers, uh, which and they calibrate their GPS receivers with these atomic clocks in the ground stations. And it's, it's a pretty complicated exercise. You can do it, and they can get down to like 10 centimeter level accuracy of their spacecraft, okay. uh, which is what they need for getting their, um, their imagery. Okay, because they they're in the business of providing very accurate imagery, right? But our service um, is for everybody. Okay, we, we intend to extend the accuracy of orbital positioning knowledge to the entire space satellite operating community. Right, and, yeah. and so you want an affordable solution here to this accuracy problem. And there's a way to get quite good enough accuracy at a, at a low price, really. Uh, and so why hasn't anyone done this yet? What's standing in the way? Well, some people are doing it experimentally, but uh, nobody's really bringing it to a mass market yet. Um, the idea, I don't know, it's, uh, it's just, we don't have the funding to really bring the product to market yet. Mm -hmm. So we, we're looking for, you know, something around $2 million is what we figure would be the budget that, that we would need to... Uh, bring the product to market, including a flight test on the International Space Station. We've had some discussions with the ISS National Laboratory Organization. Um, and so we're all set to fly an experiment, a proof of concept demonstration on the International Space Station. Okay. okay. Uh, that would all be included with our $2 million price tag. Uh, that will also include um, getting uh, the uh, ground control center uh, prediction service up and running, um, which would probably involve partnering with one of the exi existing companies. There are several companies out there that are offering prediction services. We would probably partner with somebody rather than do it all from scratch. Um, another part of it is uh, there's a fair bit of money would need to go into marketing and uh, community education, if you will, um, getting the word out uh, and um, one thing I think that would help a lot, uh, and, and that we have some budget for it, is to get uh, governments to either encourage or mandate that spacecraft operators carry these devices. Mm -hmm. um, there are, the problem of orbital debris has gotten to a point where there are many countries, including the United States, do have regulations in place. Um, and in order for a United States company to launch a spacecraft, they need to get at least two licenses, depending on the nature of the spacecraft. They do need a, a license from the FCC and a license from the FAA. Both of those organizations require an analysis to be performed by the spacecraft operator to demonstrate the lifetime of the spacecraft, the probability of a collision with another spacecraft, and uh, methods by which uh, the spacecraft can be deorbited. Mm -hmm. at the end of life right 
Um, I would say those are the analyses that people are doing. I haven't really got into the numbers, but um, the analyses would be greatly improved by having a better knowledge of where the spacecraft is. So I think our Pixie will help people to come up with much better analysis and for the purpose of obtaining the licenses. So that's one incentive why people might want to might want to subscribe to these these services. Okay. Yeah, and the, that's one thing um, that we talked about on a previous episode is uh, the end of life of the satellite. There's there's a lot of stuff that has been thrown up there with no end of life plan at all. Just oh well. We'll just yes. leave it there and see what happens, and that right. ain't great. Right. <laughs> so exactly, exactly. Then, and then there needs to be more done. I think on the international platform, you know, maybe through the United Nations and organizations mm-hmm. like that, um, to encourage um, that you know, all countries are many countries are putting objects into space, and everybody in that business needs to have a a, a common set of practices that everybody uh-huh. agrees to that we're going to we're going to limit the problem by doing these things um you know i mean in the case of civil aviation for example there's ICAO, the international civil aviation authority or no, organization and you know just nearly every country in the world is a member of that and everybody agrees that uh, you know there's going to be certain practices on how air traffic control is managed and uh, safety of commercial aircraft and things like that so we, we need something like that for spacecraft but mm-hmm. nothing like that currently exists okay yeah and that is interesting i mean uh, yeah you don't want a different process for landing a plane in dubai than you do for montreal or something right that would make life very difficult so Exactly. Some, exactly. some kind of a standard yeah, yeah. is required. Um, and and I, I guess it will have to develop over time because necessity will, will require it. Uh, what about the military side of things here? I mean, I can see getting commercial adoption and, and uh, you know, businesses going, okay, yes, yeah, so when we put up a satellite, we're going to put a pixie on it and have an end of life plan for it. And, and that'll go into some central repository and be collated so that we know, all right, here's what's going to happen. Uh, but aren't the militaries of the world going to remain kind of selfish and keep their data to themselves? Well, that's entirely possible, and that's certainly a problem. And a big problem mm-hmm. is that get, is getting getting commercial satellite operators to share data. Uh, mm-hmm. Not uh, satellite operators do not routinely share this kind of operator data, whether they be military or otherwise. It's just especially a so with the military satellites. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of what we would try to facilitate. We would try to make it easy. I, I guess commercial operators are sort of scared of releasing proprietary data by mistake. Mm-hmm. But you know, with the Pixie, they're not going to release anything proprietary. It's just GPS data. That's all it is. There's no data about you know the state or health of the host spacecraft. The host spacecraft may or may not be working. The mm-hmm. Pixie is completely independent of that. The idea is the Pixie is going to be more reliable than the host spacecraft, and so it will continue working even when the host spacecraft has, you know, has died for whatever reason. Um, so yes, yeah, so the stovepiping is a problem, and we do we do intend to have a common repository, uh, which is accessible to all subscribers. It's not going to be open source. You're going to have to pay for it if you want access yeah. to the to the data. Uh, we would like the military to be part of that. Um, we've not really had any conversations with the military at this point. It's too early. Um, but we would like the military to participate and to, to, to allow us to put the data in. 
Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because otherwise you're yeah, stuck with the Stratcom data and having to sort of maneuver around some sort of error zone that you can estimate, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some there are some military satellites where the military does not want people to know exactly where they are. Mm -hmm. So I guess they they would be specifically excluded from the system. Um, but hopefully there are some which are less sensitive and where they will share the data. Yeah. Um, oh, that, that sounds like a potential for trouble. <laughs> um, absolutely. It's a, very, it's a pretty complicated uh, process. Yeah, because there are a lot of, you know, intelligence type satellites where mm -hmm. the, uh, the operators don't want people to know exactly where they are. Right. Um, yeah, it makes sense if we stick a satellite over some Ukrainian city or something, you know, we yeah, probably, yeah. probably don't want the uh, Ukrainians or the Russians to know yeah, that we're looking, yeah. right? So, right. Okay, they true. could, but they're still, you know, they, they could still collide with something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. The, so, the risk is always there, isn't it? So you yeah, get Pixie yeah. up and running, let's say, you get user adoption. What happens when you get a potential collision warning. You've got your simulator and it says, hey, these two things are about to collide. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that'll be part of the conjunction analysis service. And um, everybody who subscribes will get advanced warning, um, probably a, a few hours warning. And, and that, that this is already happening today. There are already companies that are publishing collision warnings. Um, it's just they're not particularly accurate and we're going to be doing better. Um, but yeah, the standard procedure is there's a warning that comes out a few hours ahead of time and um, the satellite operator um, makes a judgment call and um, different operators may have different criteria, but typically uh, if they see a collision is going to be say 500 meters or less, um, then they will take what's called a collision avoidance maneuver or COLA, COLA. And they'll fire a thruster, uh, and usually they'll fire the thruster to raise the orbit slightly, rather than rather than lower the orbit, because mm -hmm. they tend to have to raise the orbit anyway from time to time. Right. And um, so they'll just do a a quick impromptu orbit raising maneuver, um, you know, something where they may be planning to do one in a couple of weeks. Well, we'll do it in the, in an hour, <laughs> just right. to make sure we get out of the way. But once they once they've done that, then you know we'll immediately have to recalculate the orbit, figure out you know they may have gotten out of the way of one object, but have they put themselves straight in the track of another object? You know, so it's an ongoing um, orbital ballet. Um, right. It, it okay. never ends. No, that does not. Uh, is there anything else that you would like the public or a potential investor to know? Um, yeah, well, we're ready. I mean, the other thing perhaps I could add is that um, I mentioned some people are doing it experimentally. Um, so yeah, NASA, NASA has a spacecraft called TechEdSat, which has a, which is used in the Iridium service. Um, there's a group in uh, Indiana at a university out there that's launching what they call ThinSats. They're using the Global Star Service, um, and I have. Uh, uh, so that that's public information. I have some non-public information about some other services that are being used, but I will not talk about those mm -hmm. right now. Uh, but we we do know that those two work um, because they've been demonstrated. 
And um, one thing I, we plan to do on the, for us, experiment on the space station is we plan to do both. Um, we plan to do a comparison of the Iridium and the Globe Star and see if we can figure out, you know, are there any pros and cons of one over the other? Because right now we are, we are open. We have not selected a transponder. Right. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to have both in our uh, production version. We're going to pick one or the other. So that's a, that's a decision we'll have to make. And um, uh, we'll do that uh, uh, once we've had our space station experiment flying. Okay. And uh, once we've done that, we will, um, we will make a decision on which one we're going to mass produce. Um, okay. And uh, prototype and uh, uh, we believe we can get to market in 18 months. Mm. Uh, so pretty quick. Uh, yeah. If we got, if we got, if we got about, if we got two million, which I think is uh, that that is ample to get us to market in 18 months. Uh, if we had less than two million, we could still get the market, but it would take a little longer. Okay. Yeah, I, I simulation thing got to partner up with somebody and uh, and just get that prototype working so how can people connect with you um, you know if they if they want to follow you or find out more sure um, yeah thanks we have uh, we have a website um, www.spaceinitiatives.com well, that's space spelled s-p-a-c-e hyphen initiatives i-n-i-a-t-i-v-e-s and uh, my email address is CFR, which stands for Charles Frank Radley. That's CFR at space-initiatives.com. Right. And uh, uh, I also have a phone number, area code 503-922-1012. All right. Get the most uh, out of it. The, <laughs> we're in the Eastern time zone in Florida. Uh, well, we, when I'm in Florida, my partner, uh, Marshall Eubanks, is in mm -hmm. Virginia. And uh, our, our legal counsel is in New York. So we're all in the Eastern time zone. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on. I, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And, uh, and good luck with the project. Thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, inviting me. It's been a, a real pleasure. You bet.